Ever wondered what motivates people to get plastic surgery? Did they regret it? What can we learn from the stories of plastic surgery patients? We're here to explore those questions and get some answers today with my guest, Ebo Barton, on the Plastic Surgeon Podcast. my friends welcome back and thanks to our listeners for the amazing feedback we have had so much fun so far and look forward to more of your insights and suggestions please rate and review us on apple podcast to help us get you more great content on the plastic surgeon podcast we listen to real plastic surgery stories of triumph and pain from real patients and providers to further understand why they would risk their life under the knife i'm dr javad saj and my guest today is the amazing Ebo Barton. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Ebo. How are you, my friend? Pretty good. We're here to talk about your journey, how we came to know each other, the procedure you underwent, and how it affected you, Ebo. Yeah. So, Ebo, I had the privilege of meeting you a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And the operation I did for you was a transgender or gender-affirming surgery. Mm -hmm. And we did a surgery called FTM, or female-to-male top surgery. Mm -hmm. That's a generic word. There's many variations of it. Mm -hmm. But what that really meant for you was a double incision chest reconstruction. Yeah. Is that correct? Yes, that is. Awesome. So, Yibo, we're going to talk about the surgery and get into that. First, let's learn a little bit about you. All right. Where are you from? Um, I'm originally from Los Angeles. Actually, I was just talking about this. I'm from the San Fernando Valley of Southern California um, in Los Angeles County. (laughs) So I usually tell people L.A. just to get it over with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I came up here about 15 years ago. I was um, I was in the United States Navy and I was ported here in Everett. So this this area is actually the first area I was introduced to. Um, And then I was as I was exiting the military, I started getting into spoken word poetry Mm -hmm. and found a community there um, and did not want to go back home. That's cool. (laughs) And when you grew up, did you have both your mom or dad or was was it one parent? Um, I'm mostly, I just had my mom. Um, mm-hmm. In my younger years, I was raised by my grandmother. Uh-huh. Um, my stepfather was sort of in and out and my uh, biological father was not there at all. Did you have any siblings? Yeah, I have an older sister. Um, she's four years older than me. Okay. Yeah. And, and um, with your stepfather, um, how how close was your relation with him? Uh, during the times that he was around, we were very close. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I remember mimicking his uh, style, like whatever he was wearing, I would try to wear similar. Mm-hmm. And um, there was also a lot of, uh, you know, I feel like there was an understanding between the two of us that I wasn't the uh, girl that everybody wanted me to be. Mm. Um, but it was un- definitely unspoken. There was never um, a spoken or acknowledged version of that. How old were you when that started happening? I think I was like, not, I want to say eight or nine, eight or nine years old. I started playing softball, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was sort of like my connection to my stepdad, right? Was that I played a sport and he knew about it and he knew about fitness. So we worked together a lot and that sort of bonded that relationship. And did your mom notice that you were um, maybe featuring more um, characteristics that weren't with your gender identified at birth? 
Yeah, I think uh, my mom fought it very hard. Really? Um, yeah, as so I'm half Filipino, uh-huh. and um, I feel like my mother really wanted that traditional young Filipino girl that um, you know went off and got married and was very religious and all of that. And I definitely wasn't that. Um, so she fought it very hard, like very much had dresses for me available to wear, found other activities for me to do. And I feel like the way that's played out as me as an adult is that I'm sort of this masculine person that has a lot of like domestic skills, right? Like, mm-hmm. so um, I cook, I, you know, do yard work, you know, like I sew all of these things and I'm in, I can even compliment um, a young woman's fashion and be on point about it, but from a masculine perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And what religion was your family? Uh, Roman Catholic. Are you still Roman Catholic? I'm not. Um, I'm spiritual, but Mm -hmm. I don't know that I have a name for it yet. Sure. Yeah. Well, when you were eight or nine, other than dressing, um, what other characteristics did you have that were more quote unquote male-ish? Yeah. um, And it's so hard to answer now because we have better ways of describing masculinity versus femininity Mm -hmm. now. But in those times it was the energy that I felt was more along with, with the boys that I knew Mm. than with the young women that I knew and the young women that I did hang out with, I feel like were sort of tomboyish. Like I was, Mm. um, and I I don't know necessarily. And that was when I sort of identified the range of masculinity, was through the young women that I I vibed with. So it was, oh, I don't have to necessarily be as male as the football player or as masculine as the football player, but I am more masculine than this young girl. And so I started recognizing that there was a way for me to belong without necessarily being all the way both ways. Since this was so different from your cultural background, Mm -hmm. how did you feel about it? Mm. Um, it was honestly, it was rough. I'm, I'm 37 years old and I didn't come out till I was about 32. And I think what ends up happening is you don't think that this is what you want or that what is for you, um, because of family, right? Like family is such a large part of our lives. And so our biggest goal is to never disappoint them, to make them proud. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this was one thing coming out as transgender and non-binary was the one thing that would tear everything down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I held on to it for a really long time. And, um, and when I came out, that has been sort of, uh, a work in progress with my family mm-hmm. trying to figure out um, how I can, how I can change enough to be comfortable with myself to also make them comfortable with me, but I also need them to meet me there. And I think that that's the struggle we're having. So you, you were, uh, when did you start dressing more masculine? Um, I've been dressing on and off masculine since I was about that age. Mm. And I think that it was uh, this sort of mental struggle of what do I have to be? Where do Mm. I have to belong? And it wasn't until I think I was about 23-ish where I just said, I'm not going to try anymore. This is how I feel comfortable, regardless of what gender I I may or may not be. How did your mom understand that you were headed more in this direction? What What did you tell her? Um, so I came out to her, uh, in my thirties, like I said, and her first reaction was, um, you're, you're talking too loud about this now. And so immediately what I thought was, 
oh, she's embarrassed, not because she's embarrassed. She's embarrassed because of what everybody else is going to think of her and not me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so our lit, there was this narrative of, you know, like I failed as a mother and I, mm-hmm. and that's something that as, as her child, I want to protect her from, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I'm the reason. Right. Um, and were you so close to, were you close to her? We were close in a, in a different way. Like we were able to have like deep conversations, but there, uh, there was this, there is a barrier between us. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I put another one there by coming out. When you were going more in the tomboyish direction, if you will, mm-hmm. um, did you guys talk about that at all before you came out to her? Um, I think because I came out as a lesbian um, many years before that. And I think that she still struggled with that identity. And then to move to changing my gender was just too much. Right. Like I was already having trouble with this one thing. And now you're telling me this whole other thing that I'm not even sure I have a grasp on. How old were you when you came out as lesbian to her? Um, I think I was about 20, 21. Did you have any relations with the opposite gender before that? Um, I had very casual and not at all serious relationships. So she like never met a boyfriend of mine by any means. And how did you come to understand that you were a lesbian? Hmm. Um, In high school, I started recognizing that the feelings I was having was actually for my friends and not for the boys in my class or whatever it was. Um, And it wasn't until I think I was uh, I was interested in a classmate and she also happened to be um, a lesbian. How did you know she was a lesbian? She told me. I feel like when we're younger, it's a lot easier to admit like in within our peers. It's a lot easier to admit what our sexualities or um, identifications are than it is to the outside world. Who said it first? Did you say it or she said it? She said it for sure. <laughs> you just, she just announced it to your friend group? How, how does that come up in a conversation? I feel like it's this, um, it's, I feel like we were in, uh, we were in class for sure. And it was very casual. It was just like, oh yeah, we're going to pride because we're going to, you know, do whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I should do that, <laughs> you know? And so there's this like, it like uh interest in it right but then at the same time there was also like oh i wonder how she got to be that way and just totally fine with it you know and where did you learn that being lesbian was even a possibility because it sounds like you grew up in a strong um disciplined atmosphere yeah um so growing up in la we hung around west hollywood a lot which is the sort of the gayborhood <laughs> and so um there was a lot of permission in those, in that nightlife for me, um, seeing people out and not scared and holding their partner's hand or dancing Mm. with somebody else. And so there was this permission that I saw and it almost gave me this idea that I was living in two different worlds where I could go to West Hollywood and be whoever I was. And then I would go home and, you know, sort of put the disguise back on. Mm. Yeah. And so, and then I felt like that carried over into this identity of being transgender and non-binary in which I was like, okay, so here I am just a lesbian and at home by myself, I can be this trans man that I think that I am. Right. Mm. Yeah. And did you have a relationship with that high school classmate? I did. I did. We, we dated for about two years. Um, and you know, it was just sort of a a high school thing. So I just think it kind of went away. And a lot of people often ask, you know, or wonder when someone transitions their gender, if they had an intimate relation with the opposite gender, did you ever have that before 
um, coming out as lesbian or no? Um, yeah, I had intimate relationships with the opposite gender, um, but it I feel as though there was always something missing for me. Mm. Um, and even in my sexuality, I, I identify as pansexual, which means mm. that I I'm romantically uh, interested in all genders. Mm-hmm. And I feel like at that time it felt more oppressive to be in a cisgender woman's body. Um, and have a relationship with a man. And it wasn't until I transitioned that I felt comfortable again being with a cis man. Okay. Yeah. Um, after you came out as lesbian, mm-hmm. your mom probably sounds like she had a heart attack or something like that. <laughs> Simil- something or, close like that. Yeah. Who else in your family knew about that? Um, so the way my mom processes, which is very interesting, is with all of our family members. And so she just sort of blurts things out. And little to my knowledge, she had already told everyone. It was sort of like separate phone calls that happened. Who's everyone? Oh, my uh, my sister, my stepfather, my uncle, my aunt, and my cousins, who are sort of our immediate family group mm-hmm. in that area. And I did had no idea. And we were at uh, at my mom's house, and I, you know, my girlfriend was there, and my uncle comes in, and he was like, "Oh, hey," and I was like, "Oh," and I never said this is my girlfriend. I was like, "Oh, this is Sam," and he was like, "Oh, so you're the one." And I was like, oh, crap, you know, like this, you know, right. And then, you know, a days after that, my sister called me and was like, mom told me what you said, you know, like, and so it was this, I had to figure out that everybody knew. How were they? Were they supportive or were they like you're more not supportive? Um, I think that there, I think there was a lot of discomfort and grief from my elder family members, like my mom and my, and my uncle. And I think the way that played out was making a joke about it. Oh, that that's because you're gay. Ha ha ha. You know, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so while hurtful, it was interesting to watch them process in this way. Did anyone try convincing you that you weren't lesbian and this was wrong? Oh, absolutely. Um, my mom definitely said things like that. What did she say? Uh, she would say, you never gave men a chance or... It maybe if you tried makeup or a dress or, you know, like tried everything she could. Do you want to get your hair done? Do you want to get your nails done? You know, like all of these uh, sort of uh, cookie cutter ways in which to be a girl. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and was trying to force them on me just to see what would happen. And it was just never something I wanted to do. And how did you respond to that when she made those times? There was a couple of times in which I gave in, but it was more of trying to make my mom happy for the day. Yeah. Yeah. It was never for me. It was just an activity we would share together. And I know your biological father seems like wasn't that involved. No. Did, did you ever, have you talked to that person or do they know about um, your transition? You know, I don't think so. Um, and so it's interesting is that uh, I actually did try to look for him recently. And uh, my, in my brain, I said, well, how do you explain who you are, if they don't, if he has no idea of who you've become, what the story is from point A to point B, and how do you explain that? What do you do about his reaction? What, you know, and I sort of went through this whole uh, thing in my head. And in the end, I said, well, if you weren't invested in the story, then you don't get to have the ending. Mm-hmm. So I just, I was like, you know what? I'll leave you where you are. I know where you are now because the, you know, the internet, <laughs> but I don't think that you deserve this part of the story. Why did you want to look for him? I think it was more, you know, when you start taking HRT, I think one of the things that they tell you um, when I started taking testosterone um, was that 
you will start to, you know, have the characteristics or take on a lot of things from your the male side of your family. Mm. And I and I never got that. I, I didn't have any evidence of that. Right. So I was like, well, I don't know how my facial hair is going to come in. I don't know, you know, like all of the different ways. And so I f- went to go look for at least a photo of him. So I could see what I might not necessarily what I might look like, but how my progress might go about. Right. Um, And I never found one. I found an old high school photo of him that looks very much like me. (laughs) And um, and then uh, and then after that, I was just like, you know, maybe this is just not part of my story. Mm -hmm. What did your mom tell you about him? Um, She told me that he was a very angry man. Um, he was also, uh, funny, like a, you know, he's very much a comedian type guy and that's pretty much all I know. Was he Filipino too? No, he's a black man. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, you did high school, you transitioned. I mean, you, you announced as came out as lespian mm-hmm. and then after high school, what, what was next? Did you go to college? Yeah. I went to college very briefly, um, before leaving for the military and that sort that era of my life was me trying to figure out um, what I wanted in terms of the the big uh, what do I want to go after? What interested you in the military? Um, the in, the interest in the military was the benefits only. <laughs> there was no um, at that point in time there was no interest in like being a soldier by any means. It was also a way to get out of where I was um, in California. Yeah. And so I, I took the opportunity. Um, the weird part was that I left with a lot of folks wait six months or a year before they leave after signing up. I left within 30 days of signing a contract. So it was just sort of this push into independence and adulthood and figure it out. And you, why did you, did you leave college for the military? Um, I, I graduated. Um, I have a fashion design degree that I don't use. Um, and then I, then eventually I left. So it was like, a, maybe I want to say six months after I graduated. Is that a four or two year degree? Two year. Okay. So yeah. it was like a community college? It was at a, a vocational college. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, then you signed up for the military mm-hmm. and, you, and, and what were the benefits that were so good? Um, the free school, um, the, and then like your, track to career seemed they were selling it to me uh seemed like it was something i really wanted to do to have more stability as an adult and what's that track to career uh track to career they they train you for a job in the military you do it for your set amount of years and then you come out and they give you the resources to get that job outside of the military is what's supposed to happen mm. how was the navy um it was it's it's very interesting culture mm-hmm. um you know like it's a totally different world than being a civilian because you're under these rules and regulations and dealing with people in this new set of ways and how to exist um it's obviously very gendered which was an which was interesting in my own brain in mm-hmm. my own privacy um because i was you know around women all day long almost Every day Um, I lived with 92 other women in one, you know, one room on a ship. And so it was just very interesting. And then and then exiting that that room to work with to like mix and intermingle with the males was just a very interesting experience in which what women take from men, um, what the ways in which we have to keep silent, um, you know, and I say we, because in that, in that moment, that's what I, you know, that's the way I had to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just watching all of that 
and almost watching the world in this microcosm um, and like and being trapped on this ship for days and years and months. What was your position in the Navy? I was a um, culinary specialist. What does that mean? I worked in the kitchen. I was a chef for all the, the members on board. How many years did you do that? Two and a half. Do you, do you think the military sort of gendered roles or was it pretty open? If you wanted to be like a mechanic or something, would that be possible? I mean, it was possible, but uh, I feel like the environment isn't set up for women to appropriately um, succeed. Did you pick that position or was it assigned to you? It was assigned to me. Really? Yeah. How do they assign those roles? Um, they will take your general interest and whatever becomes available is what they will offer you and then ask you if you want to leave. Um, I think with my story, it was more like I wanted to leave more than I wanted a job. <laughs> and so I took what was available. So uh, on the ship, I would think mostly things are like processed or ready to go, but is there a lot of cooking involved? Oh yeah. Lots of, so we did uh, 4,000 meals a day Wow. Um, for 1500 crew members. Um, and so it was just, yeah, it was constantly. So breakfast would, we would, Prepare for breakfast, serve breakfast, prepare for lunch, serve lunch, prepare dinner, serve dinner. You know, it was just automatic on on the clock. How many hours of work was it a day? Um, I want to say it was something around, it was something around 12 hours, 12 to 13, depending on who you were and what you were doing. Um, much of my time was spent in the bake shop. So like 13 hours. Um, and then when we are out to sea, we don't get days off. So and how many years were you in the Navy? About two and a half. Did you overall like it? Overall, I think it was an experience that I needed. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I say that I would, that I liked it. <laughs> How did you leave? Was it like your term was over or you were done with it? Oh, I was discharged. So um, I was, um, how do I say this? Um, I want to say this appropriately. Um, I was sexually assaulted um, while uh, on, in the military and that particular incident sort of blew up into a bigger issue. Um, and then I was given the option to leave. And do you mind telling us what happened? Sure. Um, so I uh, had a relationship, a friendly relationship with a crew member. And was that um, person male? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and it was sort of this idea that all, you know, like once you find a friend on the ship, like their friends are sort of your friends. And I was one of the very rare younger folks that had an apartment. So everybody just sort of hung out there. Um, and I think that things just got out of hand and out of my control, which is the most dangerous place to be in any situation. Um, and so that happened. So how did things get out of control? I feel like there was a lot of alcohol involved um, with, you know, with him, with everybody else. And I lost control of that situation because and this was your friend or a friend of a friend. This was my friend. Okay. Yeah. Do you mind sharing with us what happened? Yeah. So um, we were, we were in my room and I think that he was in intoxicated and, um, and honestly, I don't remember how it happened. I just know that it did. Um, and then after that, it became, it started weighing on my, on my mental health. Did he rape you? Yes. And you, um, you were fighting him off? Or yes. And it started weighing on my mental health because I wasn't sure if I could tell anyone. I wasn't sure if anybody would believe me. Um, and so finally, when I did say something about it, uh, there was no action whatsoever. Really? Yeah. And so. What, what year was this? 
early or mid 2000s, I feel like. How um, on how long did you wait to report it? Um, it was weeks before I waited to report it. It was I want to say it was more than more than a month for sure. Did he hit you during the encounter? No. Yeah. Um, it was it was more of and I think honestly, it was more of he just wanted to be able to do it to say that he was that he did it. Mm. Um, and that's the stories that I heard afterwards and like from other crewmates. And then um, when you reported it, what happened? Um, you know, like there's this artificial care that obviously happens with the person you're reporting to. And when you see the actions play out, it's that they moved me away from the, his department. Um, he got to, he got to stay. And then I found out a few months later that he was promoted. Um, and so considering that story, I would assume that that would have a role in not promoting him. And that sort of really bothered me where I was like, what, like, how is this even possible? And now technically he's my supervisor. Are you kidding? Yeah. Like, since we're all in the same department. So he was in the kitchen too. Yeah. Oh my God. And so I was, so that really weighed heavy on me. I started seeing a therapist that was in the Navy also. So it's sort of this, like, uh, their rules are what they're going to try to enforce. And so because he was a good sailor, he couldn't have been somebody who did that. That was sort of the the line I was given. Mm. Like, that was, I, he was a good sailor, look at his records, and then you're telling me he did this, and then it, it didn't align to me. Um and so that started weighing meant heavy on my mental health. And I went to it into a very deep depression in which I couldn't, I couldn't work anymore. Um, and then that's when we had to have a conversation about whether or not um, I was able to continue. Uh, and then I was given uh, what's called shore duty in which um, you get to be on base instead of on a ship. Um, and eventually I, they just were like, okay, so do you want to, do you want to get out? And I said, yes. And, and when you were on the ship with this, rapist Mm -hmm. who was your supervisor how did you how did you deal with the day-to-day well when they changed my department i didn't often see him but there was obvious there was an obvious unspoken agreement that we would no longer speak Mm. um and from my end of it it almost felt like he then just didn't see me anymore there was no discipline they did that you know not that i know of they did they didn't inform me of anything like that Wow. Yeah. And then when you, when they discharged you or offered you the discharge, did they give you your full benefits or what happened with all that? Um, so I was honorably discharged, but because I didn't finish my term, um, I owed a bunch of money for bonuses that I got. Um, a lot of my benefits were cut in half. Um, so it's, it, it's really interesting how it plays out while I was able to get an honorable discharge because dishonorable would keep me from getting employed ever again or, you know, any of those things that was beneficial, but they definitely took half of my benefits away because I didn't fulfill my contract. How long was your contract? Four years. Wow. That's yeah. horrible. Yeah. I think, it seems like they've done a lot of reforms. Oh yeah. Yeah. From my understanding, there's been a lot of reforms, um, but like we're seeing it now, like in terms of what's happening outside politically, I think we need to rebuild everything with people in mind this time, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like with the military, it was obviously, and I, you know, I understand like that it was founded on the basis that men will fight for us. But once you allow women in, you have to make room for how that's going to play out between all people involved. Absolutely. Yeah. 
after the Navy, what did you do? Um, so I was, as I was getting out, I discovered uh, a poetry slam in Fremont mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was just, I, I became addicted almost immediately where I was like, people are, that's something I could never do. And I, and I wrote poetry, but it was very much a private um, thing that I did for myself. Like, you know, while I was in my, in my bed after work and just, you know, shoved it under my mattress. So I, I went and I saw, and I saw how incredible it was. And maybe after the third time people started recognizing me mm -hmm. and welcoming me and, you know, buying me a drink or asking me what I was writing tomorrow. And I just fell in love with that community so fast that I was like, okay, so I'm not going to go back home and I'm going to see what this is. And, um, and so I, I was able to not only process all of the different things that have happened to me out loud and with people that were willing to help me create these things, um, I found a community. And what was that community? Um, writers, poets, artists, weirdos. Um, and then within that, there were also subgroups, one of which was a queer writing institute, um, of a bunch of different folks, LGBTQIA, LMNOP, uh, folks, mm. <laughs> um, writing, writing and sharing and processing and honestly being supports for each other. Um, so that I didn't, I didn't have that in California. And I was like, how can I leave if I found the thing that I needed? You know, in California, my experience overall is people are a little bit nicer, more approachable. <laughs> Seattle, you know, not as much. You it's know, too cold. We got to get back inside. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely better than New York, but a lot less warm than California as yeah. far as how much people will engage you. It's true. So, so being new here, how did you connect to people? Was it like, how did you meet and start making relations? Honestly, I, you know, I tell people this a lot, like everything that I am and everyone that I know I've in Seattle, I've met through poetry in some way, shape or form. Mm. Um, so whether that be somebody who is just an audience member or somebody who was the producer of the show or the lighting guy, you know, like any of those things um, I know through poetry. So you just went up to them after the show and started talking or how did you connect? Um, so a lot of folks will come up to you after you've read a poem on stage or um, like I said, because I was a regular face in the audience, um, people started recognizing me. Um, and so like, oh, yeah, I know you from the slam. And it was sort of this like it's almost like a club hmm. in which like, you know, you'll be at a restaurant and the and the waiter was like, oh, I think I saw you at the poetry slam. <laughs> you know, and hmm. I was like, oh, OK. So it was like sort of this inside underground community of people. That's cool. Yeah. And you built your friends that way. Oh, absolutely. And now you're in your mid to late 20s, right? Mid to late, or at that time, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when did transgender starting to become something that you were interested in? Yeah. So when I was younger, the only represent, representation of trans people I had was one was from, um, what was that movie? The Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. So it was a trans woman who was basically a murderer. Um, and then the other example I had was this weird documentary I saw on HBO of a trans man, um, sort of his transition going through, you know, going through surgery and all of these things. But he lived in a trailer in the middle of the forest. You know, he had overalls on and all this stuff. And those two things were the only thing I knew about transgender. And I knew that it wasn't me. And so I sort of tossed it in this container of like, well, I'm not a murderer. And I, I also don't want to live in a trailer in the middle of the forest. So that's not me. I'm not going to do it. Um, so 
so I just sort of put it out of my mind. I was like, I'm, you know, this is me, this is who I am. And as I started getting into writing community, especially with queer community, I started recognizing that folks were introducing themselves with different pronouns. And Hmm. I, you know, like, and a lot of my friends were having top surgery or going through the motions of top surgery or uh, changing their names. And I was like, what is this about? Like what's going on? And I did a lot more reading, a lot more, a lot more Googling um, and having a lot of like deep conversations with friends um, and recognizing how life-saving it was for them to just admit this thing that's been weighing on their brain for so long and to be able to live their lives. And as I I started to discover, um, I came across non-binary and I wanted to know so much more about that identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did a lot of research in terms of like other ways it shows up in the world and, you know, how people look at it and all of this stuff. And I was like, that is something that I feel. What is non-binary teller? Yeah. Um, non-binary is someone who doesn't identify within the gender binary identifications of male or female. So you either can live as both or as none mm-hmm. um, within your one body. And I identified with that so easily. Like I was like, yes, I do feel like that. Like nine times out of 10, that's exactly what I'm feeling. And that do you one, feel, do, sorry, you feel both or none? I feel now in this moment right now, I feel I'm leaning towards the side of male. Um, but I do feel that a lot of, um, a lot of me still has this, uh, grasp on female. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And how did your transition start? Um, so it started with, so I was going through a divorce. <laughs> you were married. <laughs> yes. Was, After the military. You were, was, yeah. it, was this person a male? No, this person was a cisgendered female. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, and we were married for about seven years. Um, and I was going through a divorce. Um, what led to the divorce? Um, <laughs> um, she was not a faithful person. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you were going through a divorce. You learned about transitioning. Yeah. What was your first step? Um, I think my first step was deciding how I was going to let everyone else know. So I feel like even now as an artist, I feel like I live two different lives in which I have this public artist life and then I have my my own stuff. And uh, And I was like, how do I change my, how do I change my name? How do I change my pronouns? How do I do all of this stuff? And sort of ease people into this um, as it, as a somebody who's in the public a lot. And so I, the first thing I decided to do was change my pronouns. I was like, I feel like that is something that um, people can work on and I can see where the, people are failing or slipping up and I can apply that knowledge to when I change my name. What did you change them to? Uh, they, them at first. Um, oh. Yeah. And how did that go? Um it was very, very interesting to see how your closest people are the worst at it, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the worst at honoring it. And I think it's because you're so close that they're like, oh, it's okay because we're cool. Right. And I'm, I'm like, actually, it's the exact opposite of that. I expect you to show up more than anybody else. Right. Mm. Um, and so I constantly had that battle with people closest to me. Um, but for the most part, I think because of the people I choose to hang around, it was mostly honored. And when did you start hormone? Um, I think it was about two years after I came out. Um, and that was also a battle for me because um, there's a conversation that we often have in, in within community about um, 
what does it mean to look uh, a certain gender? And 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 it, there there isn't really a way to look like a certain gender, right? And so in my head, I said, um, well, I don't, I'm non-binary, so I don't really want to do all that or I don't need to do all of that. But what was lurking behind and why therapy is just like the greatest thing you can do for yourself. Um, and I started talking to my therapist and what came out was that I was trying to preserve the person that my, my ex-wife wanted me to be. Mm. Right. And so I was trying to preserve, cause I thought that that person was worthy of being in a relationship or that person was worthy of this thing. And then eventually I came to terms with, Oh, I don't need to preserve myself anymore. I can be who it is that I want to be and be happy with who I look at and be comfortable in my skin, mm-hmm. um, which is how that all evolved into then taking testosterone and then deciding to have surgery. How did surgery come up on your list of something that was part of your transition? Um, I think honestly, looking at my body in the mirror um, is the like the most I feel dysphoric. I feel my gender dysphoria shows up when I'm looking in the mirror and my chest was definitely that barrier. How did you start researching surgery? Um, so at the time I worked at a nonprofit that works with a lot of healthcare um, folks and my boss, I mentioned it to my boss who was also trans. Um, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about getting top surgery, but I don't want to make this giant decision um, just and just sort of pick from this list that I have at work. Right. Like just sort of close my eyes and be like, oh, there's one. Right. And so he gave me two recommendations, one other surgeon and you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went to both consultations um, just to see what felt more most comfortable. and. Um, in the conversation that you and I had, one of the things that you said to me immediately was you're a person of color. So your healing is not going to be the same as everyone else. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, just the fact that you named it was how, was why I chose, I was like, I'm going to go here. Mm. Um, and instead of the other. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because you felt they were going to give you something more standard or, um, I felt like there was. Um, a le- like because of that statement, there was more care involved in mm. the overall um, procedure. Mm-hmm. I, I, you hadn't even shown me a knife yet. <laughs> and yeah. you were already um, showing me all of this care in which all of the different ways in which I'm thinking too. Mm. Um, and I felt that, you know, like this is obviously not like a diss track on other surgeons by any means, sure. but um, I feel like there, because of the amount of patients that many doctors or surgeons may see that there's less of, that it's more of check mark boxes of like, Oh, let's, let's do this and this and this and this. Okay. See you later. Bye. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I felt like in this moment, I really needed someone to tell me what it's going to be, how it's going to be and what to expect um, because I'm just so like, you know, that's not, it's not the easiest mm-hmm. decision to make. They were not going to ask for the name of any other providers. <laughs> well, but, now that no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, were, were there, were there any other differences that you noted that mattered to you? Yeah. Um, I think that the other part was, is that, uh, the, the rest of the staff as well, mm-hmm. right? Like that's like some, somewhere where I feel safe in the environment, mm-hmm. um, where people are talking to me like a person, um, and not just a client or a number. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I felt immediately when I came here and, you know, honestly going to other healthcare providers, you often feel like a number, right? Mm-hmm. Like you often are like, Oh, well, most people, here's this medication. Right. Um, and then also, um, 
I think that what drew me also was the Instagram um, feed that you have and the mm-hmm. Snapchat feed that you have because there's a level of accountability there. Mm-hmm. Big time. Yeah. Like you can't say what you're going to say, what, you know, like say what you want to say about someone while they're, you know, like while mm-hmm. someone's filming or that that it goes the way it's supposed to. Because mm-hmm. I know that other surgeons also watch you. Right. And mm-hmm. so like other surgeons can say whatever it is that they're going to say. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, as a, as a client, like I can make my decision of like, if I agree or don't or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you make the call to have surgery? Um, that was really, really hard. Um, but I kept telling myself that one, it was going to, it was going to save my life, which it did. Um, and that two, I want to know in every decision that I make for myself, that I did everything I can to experience the joy I deserve. Mm. Um, and if meaning that I look in the mirror and I can see even partly of the person that I know that myself to be, that's me going after the joy I deserve. That's wonderful. Yeah. So then surgery day came. How were you feeling? Oh my gosh, I was a mess. Um, I don't know if you remember this. I went to the wrong place mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then was late, um, got here. And I was like, I think the, the fear that I, sort of slept with for a week or so was that for some reason I thought I was going to wake up during surgery. Mm. And I don't know what that is or why it was, but I was like, it's the anesthesia is going to wear off and I'm going to wake up. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, all of my friends and, you know, my sister came with me and all of them were like, that's not a thing that's going to happen to you. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. you've seen it on Grey's Anatomy, but it's not going to happen. Right. Yes. (laughs) And uh, and so I sort of tried to calm myself down. I also talked to your um, anesthesiologist about it. And, you know, he reassured me like, yes, that's a thing sometimes, but that's not going to happen. And Mm -hmm. here's why. Um, So that really kept me calm. And, you know. All I re- and I tell everybody, all I remember is talking about my job and then waking up to see um, a friend like be there when I wake woke up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How has life been after surgery? Oh, man. Um, in terms of my body, it's been uh, quite the roller coaster because um, I went to Tulum, Mexico and was on the beach topless, which is something I never thought I was going to be able to do. Wow. Um, and, you know, I take photos topless. I, you know, like there's all of these different ways in which I like feel like I'm flexing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and honestly, like feeling better in terms of how I engage and participate in the world because there's this confidence now that I'm not, you know, in a binder and, you know, like hardly breathing. And it's like, mm-hmm. hi, my name is Zebo. I'm so confident. And now it's, you know, there's this certain sense of, or almost literal, a weight has been taking off me. Are you happy with the results? Oh, absolutely. What do you like about it the most? Um, when I, honestly, when I put on my, when I put on shirts, my fashion, you know, I'm fashion degree. So mm-hmm. <laughs> like looking at myself in the mirror just feels so much better and feels like I'm, this is the person that I am. That's awesome. Yeah. Ibo, thank you so much for being my guest today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Your story is so unique. There's so much you've been through and for you to share that with others, we really help them understand their journeys through yours. Thank you. And that's I hope so. Yes. And that's what I really love about the podcast. One of my most favorite things. Yeah. I have learned a lot on your ordeal and our listeners will start their own journey through you. I appreciate your time and I'm honored to have you as my guest and good friend. Thank you. If you could look back at your journey through this 
surgery process and transition. And if you could share one thing with others that may have changed or may have been good for you to know before, what would that be? Huh. Uh, something for me to know before is that um, you are, everyone is perfect exactly the way they are, but you get to make the decision of what it looks like. Um, it is totally up to you. Um, and I feel like that's not an easy thing to grasp mm -hmm. is that I'm perfect, but I can change it if I want to. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I feel like that's a place to start. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Plastic Surgeon Podcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to hear more great content. For my live surgeries and my adventures throughout the week, catch us on all social media at Real Doctor Seattle. See you next time. Bam. What?